0: I think we, we, we might make a start. Um, thanks very much for, for coming uh, to week eight of the OTJR seminar series. It's, it's good to see people out. Um, it's a, a real pleasure as well to, to have a, a colleague of mine from SOAS, uh, uh, Dr Mark Laffey, here with us today. Uh, Mark is Senior Lecturer in International Politics at SOAS in London, uh, where he's also the Convener of the MSc in International Politics. Mark specialises in a, a very wide range of topics. Uh, not least uh, IR theory, uh, international security, post-colonial studies and also US foreign policy, just to name a few. Uh, Again, he's he's got a a very lengthy publication list, much too long for me to recount with any decency here, but uh, just to say that that Mark's books include uh, Cultures of Insecurity, States, Communities and the Production of Danger, and also uh, Democracy, Liberalism and War, Rethinking the Democratic peace. Peace debate. Uh, Mark is going to speak to us this evening on the topic of Four Dead in Ohio, the Politics of Public Memory at Kent State. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh,
1: thank you. Um, thank you very much, Phil, for the invitation. Um, I should begin by saying uh, two things. First of all, uh, an acknowledgement of my co-worker my, uh, in this project. Um, The material I'm going to be presenting this evening stems from probably the best part of a a decade and a half collaboration with uh, uh, Utah Welles, who's professor of politics at Bristol. So this is very much um, shared work that I'm presenting to you this evening. Second of all, I should also apologize. Uh, Somewhere between Bristol and Oxford, I managed to mislay my memory stick. It's probably still on my desk, I'm sure. So we're going to be sort of pictures and illustrations and so forth. Um, But sadly, um, I'll just have to mime them. Um, Fortunately, I believe in redundancy, and so I did make um, a few copies of handouts just because some people like to have something to hold uh, rather than constantly be looking at things um, up on the screen or want to see the previous screen and so forth. So um, hopefully we'll manage to get through it uh, together. Um, What I want to talk about this evening is what you might call a what-happened-next story people around the world are familiar with the May 4th shootings, and they're familiar with them most commonly uh, through the John Filo photograph uh, of Mary Ann kneeling over the body of Jeffrey Miller, uh, who was one of the four students who was shot uh, by the Ohio National Guard uh, on May 4th, uh, 1970, uh, on the campus of Kent State. Um, this particular photograph uh, has now assumed a kind of, I don't know, a, a meta-status, uh, in international news circles, every time there's some outbreak of violence or protest on U.S. campuses or indeed on campuses other, elsewhere in the world, um, this particular photograph um, seems to appear. So for example, um, after the attacks on uh, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on September 11, 2001, uh, the Guardian in London uh, used this photograph to illustrate student protests against the U.S. government uh, and the reaction that it was taken to uh, the attack. So. Um, I think this photograph genuinely has a kind of global, iconic status. Um, And what I'm interested in, uh, and what Yuta in my research explores, is what happened next, so what happens after the photograph. In other words, what I call for the the purposes of the presentation, the politics of public memory uh, of the shootings. By public memory, what we mean is simply official, uh, institutionalised history, uh, the stories that power tells about itself, if you like. And we contrast that with popular memory, or what the Chinese and Vietnamese term uh, wild history, that is, unofficial histories and popular memories uh, of places and people that exist in a relationship of tension uh, or even outright contradiction uh, with public memory. Often one gets an explicit invocation of emotion or commitment or a gut feeling um, in this kind of history or popular memory, as opposed to the, the, the scholarly objectivity Uh, that one often finds backing up sort of official histories. Think, for example, of the contrast between the account of the shootings told by Kent State University's administration, which I'll talk about in just a few minutes, uh, or established historians on the one hand, and compare that with the kind of account that you might find from the families of the dead, for example, uh, or indeed the owners of the many websites uh, dedicated uh, to May 4th uh, and the events that took place. This tension-filled relation, I want to argue, is integral to analysis of the politics of public memory at Kent State, um, as will become apparent as we go on. In particular, I want to stress three aspects of this relationship. First of all, I want to stress uh, a repeated clash between public and popular narratives of these events, which generates a kind of a persistent instability, if you like. um, lays open the uh, persistent possibility of contestation. Um, of these particular accounts uh, in a variety of settings and times and places as I'll make clear. Um, The second aspect I want to stress, and again this will become apparent as I go along, is the way in which um, uh, and perhaps this is just a function of the fact that I'm an international relations scholar, one of the things that for me and you say is noteworthy about the official histories of uh, the shootings at May 4th is the way in which they tend to marginalise or even to obscure the role of the international. Um, uh, in in the the lead up to and the um, actual events of, of uh, those two days on the campus. In other words, there's a kind of a reaffirmation um, of uh, American culture, American values, American institutions. Um, Kent State becomes about uh, the proper limits of uh, protest in a democratic society, rather than about uh, America and the world, actions taking place in Southeast Asia, and so on. Now that might sound like an odd thing to say given um, how these things are normally talked about, but hopefully it will become apparent uh, as I go along. And the third thing I want to stress is um, the institutional um, uh, relationship between popular memory on the one hand and the official commemorations of May 4th uh, at Kent State, which is one of the ways in which popular memory has been able to, as it were, sort of interfere with or to um, uh, disorganise public memory in uh, a persistent kind of way, and again that will become apparent, uh, clearer as I, as I go along. So I want to stress those three aspects um, of the uh, relationship uh, over time. Um, in order to uh, give you some sense of what we're talking about, um, let me begin with a very quick overview of the shootings, and it will be very quick, um, so as to put what comes after in some sort of context. I think we can identify at least four scales. Uh, at which the shootings might be contextualized. Um, Those would be uh, the scale of US foreign policy, the United States and the world, uh, US domestic politics, uh, Ohio state politics, um, and the history of student demonstrations at Kent State itself. One of the things that uh, I want to make clear before we go any further is that um, Utah, in my analysis of the shootings, focuses primarily um, on Kent State itself as the site where the shootings took place and where most of the efforts to memorialise them have taken place over the course of the last 40 odd years. Um, and so the, the account given giving uh, this evening sort of grows out of uh, that setting whilst making reference to other, other scales. And that's really where we begin. Now, with respect to those four scales, I think the first two, those of U.S. foreign policy and, uh, if you like, U.S. domestic politics, are relatively well known. So the context of U.S. foreign policy is, of course, Uh, the ongoing war in Southeast Asia. It's the um, uh, claim during the 1968 US presidential election by Richard Nixon that he had a secret plan uh, for ending the war in Vietnam through Vietnamization, um, but he didn't tell me what the plan was. Um, The plan actually turned out to be that he had no plan, uh, (laughs) that in fact he was going to invade Cambodia. Also, uh, the year after that, 1969, the My Lai Massacre, uh, is is um, uh, becomes public. Uh, the character of the conflict uh, in South Vietnam becomes more apparent to the US public. Uh, very shortly thereafter, the, um, the draft uh, is institutionalized um, in the United States as well. So, US foreign policy context. I think it's relatively well known. Second context: the US domestic politics. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you have um, a growing pl- uh, polarization. Uh, over the war. So, opinion polls in the United States um, show that the American public dislikes the war, is very unhappy about the war, um, but in fact, they dislike anti war protesters even more. So, you have this ongoing sort of anti war mo- movement, which is um, extremely unpopular with the wider US public. You also have, of course, the ongoing civil rights movement and a whole range of interactions between the anti war movement and the civil rights movement. Uh, during this period, which I'll just leave to one side. The one thing I would um, stress there was the um, growing um, awareness and development of accounts of the war, which stressed the relationship between domestic repression um, and external aggression. So a, a kind of a connection between sort of politics inside and politics outside uh, the United States. Probably less familiar uh, to most um, people with an acquaintance, uh, even a passing acquaintance with May 4th, are the context of Ohio State, that is the the state inside the United States, um, and the Kent campus itself. Um, So let me just say something about those, because again they help to give a sense of the the context within which these events took place and therefore something about how they come to be understood. Uh, In Ohio itself, uh, before the Kent State demonstrations and shootings, There had been other demonstrations, in fact a number of demonstrations uh, at Akron University, Ohio University, Dayton University, Miami University and Ohio State University. So throughout the state there had been repeated um, demonstrations and protests of various kinds. In response, uh, Ohio's governor, James Rhodes, uh, had made extensive use of the National Guard. In fact, it's estimated that in the period from 1968 to 1970, uh, the Ohio government spent more money uh, on using the National Guard to police these kinds of demonstrations, than any other state, uh, than the other states uh, in the Union combined. So, Rhodes made frequent and repeated use uh, of the National Guard to police these things. Uh, in fact, he called them out 40 times uh, in the two years prior to the shootings. In addition, uh, he was nearing the end of a primary campaign uh, for the Republican Senate nomination. Um, one of his major platforms, not surprisingly, was law and order. Um, and the last week of the campaign uh, was May 1st, 4th, so coincided with the protests uh, on Kent State campus. Um, this particular context, by the way, has led to a persistent um, um, sort of strand uh, in the May 4th literature where people want to claim that it's some kind of conspiracy that Rhodes had, in fact, you know, given an order for the, um, the students to be shot in order to make a certain kind of a point uh, about the character of the anti war uh, movement. That may or may not be true. It's not particularly relevant to the argument uh, that I'm making today. But there is, when when I've talked about this um, in in the United States, and in, in Ohio in particular, there's almost always someone in the audience or some group in the audience who will claim that it was a conspiracy, that there is evidence uh, in Columbus, which is the, the capital of Ohio. And um, at one point, Yuta and I, when we taught at um, Kent State, uh, had a very um, eager research assistant who was just, dying to get down to the archives uh, in Columbus so that he could come back with the real evidence, so that we could nail Rhodes posthumously for what he'd done. So that's the context in Ohio. And then finally, very briefly, there's the context of Kent State itself. Um, Kent State is not an elite institution. It's a second or third tier uh, university within the Ohio State system. Um, It does not attract uh, the best and the brightest uh, students, even within Ohio, Uh, In fact, amongst the the better students, those who did well in high school and go on to places like uh, Oberlin or Ohio State or elsewhere, um, there's a little refrain uh, to describe Kent State can't read, can't write, Kent State. So, its um, student body is characterized primarily by first generation, um, uh, white working class uh, um, students, some African American a um, uh, n- number of students as well, um, many of whom first-time uh, university goers, um, which generates um, remarkably emotional scenes uh, at um, graduation ceremonies. Uh, James Best, uh, who taught at Kent State for 20-odd years, had the following characterization: He said, Kent State does not make many of its students radicals uh, or even very liberal, uh, and that's still true. Um, every year, just for a flavour of the, the place, every year when the May 4th um, um, commemorations come around, uh, the student newspaper, the Daily Kent State, will publish letters uh, from students. Uh, a small but significant subset of those letters repeatedly say they should have shot all the protesters and words that So uh, May 4th is not particularly popular uh, on Kent State campus amongst the student body. Um, so, this was not, um, then or since, a particularly radical or activist campus, soon not an elite campus. Um, on the other hand, uh, during the um, late 60s, and the period leading up to 1970, uh, the university did briefly host a chapter of the Students for a Democratic Society, and it also had an active uh, black university students organisation. Uh, those individuals on campus who were concerned Um, about uh, the war and racism and civil rights and so forth, identified a number of issues that they pursued during the lead-up to the um, shootings. In addition to racism and war, students also agitated, unsuccessfully it must be said, uh, for the abolition of the ROTC on campus. Uh, for the closure of the Liquid Crystal Institute, uh, which was funded in part with uh, Department of Defence money. The Liquid Crystal Institute, if you go to Kent State now, is held up as one of the the, the great scientific um, achievements uh, and institutions on campus. Uh, It puts Kent State on a world map. Um, The activists in the period before 1970 were trying to close it down because it was funded by the Defence Department. They also agitated for removal of a state criminal investigation lab from the campus and for termination of the university's law enforcement program. So a variety of issues, none of which were particularly successfully pursued, but that helps to give a sense and a flavour of the campus uh, at which the shootings took place. Um, For those of you who are not familiar uh, with May 4th, 1970, let me briefly recount uh, the the facts of the matter. I'll do this very succinctly because I'm going to go on to talk about the ways in which um, the shootings have been narrated Variously by um, a variety of people over the course of the last 30 or 40 years. So other aspects will become apparent uh, as I speak. On April 30th, 1970, Richard Nixon announced via television uh, the invasion of Cambodia and therefore the expansion rather than the, the ending or the contraction or the Vietnamization, um, Vietnamization of the Vietnam War. The announcement prompted a wave of protests across the United States, uh, as students in particular challenged uh, a shift in policy um, that was directly contrary uh, to the platform on which Nixon had run uh, in 1968. Four days later, on May 4th, Ohio National Guardsmen, who had been called to Kent State campus the day before because of the burning down of the ROTC building, um, opened fire on students protesting the invasion, 13 students were shot and four of them died. The next day, May 5th, uh, the governor declared martial law and over 700 universities across the United States closed down uh, in, as, well as a result of protests and so forth at the to and at the, um, um, the invasion of Cambodia. This constituted the largest student strike uh, in US history. So, those are the events. What I want to do now is to talk about, as I said, what happened next. And as a way to sort of begin to um, get at why this is, um, why what happened next is rather peculiar. Um, let me sort of explain how and why I came to be writing about Kent State, because I didn't really set out to write about Kent State, some of those things that sort of popped up. Um, um, in the early 1990s, uh, Yuta Wallace, who's my um, co-author, got a job at Kent State, uh, and she and I taught there for a number of years in the 1990s. Um, neither one of us had been there before. Um, I'm from New Zealand. Um, I'd never been to the United States uh, prior to going there to do my PhD. Um, she was from Philadelphia, grew up essentially in a German family uh, in Philadelphia. Nonetheless, we both knew about Kent State, right? we'd both seen the picture, uh, we both you know, had this association with it, me from sort of like the bottom of the South Pacific, um, her from somewhere in, sort of back and forth between Philadelphia um, and Dusseldorf. So one day we decided to go and have a look at the site of the shootings, as you do. So, to our surprise, it proved extremely difficult to find it. Um, there were no signposts. Um, it seemed to be sort of off in a kind of a corner of the campus, sort of behind trees and things, so it was actually hard to find. So when we got there, the next thing that... So we were surprised by that, right? That you know, Kent State has this sort of global reputation um, because of the shootings. Um, but when you actually get to the, to the place itself, you can't find a took place. When we did get there, we found a little box which had pamphlets in it, and so we pulled the pamphlet out and read it. And this posed the, sort of the second puzzle, because the, the narrative within the, um, the pamphlet itself seemed to be completely internally incoherent. At one point, there seemed to be a bunch of students who were protesting um, against uh, the war in Vietnam. And the next minute, four of them were dead, and it was all very tragic. Right? It was kind of impossible to figure out how this had happened. So it was, it was um, I mean, it's not that I, I, I place great faith in the pamphlet that one finds at <laughs> uh, historical monuments. This is not the source of my, my information about the world. Nonetheless, it was strikingly incoherent. Um, it was bizarrely so. Um, and that's sort of where the, um, uh, the, the prompting uh, for this project came um, from finding ourselves um, more or less serendipitously on, on the campus and then being puzzled um, at this particular um, experience. Now, unbeknownst to us at the time, Uh, In the aftermath of the shootings on May 4th, there had been a continuing struggle uh, over their memory. There had been repeated struggles uh, over commemoration. There had been repeated struggles over memorialization. Um, And um, the way in which I would make sense of this particularly incoherent account that was being passed out to the public if they managed to find the um, the site of the um, memorial was uh, as a function of the ways in which this um, sort of struggle over memory uh, had manifested itself. Uh, over time. It's worth stating before I go any further um, that these were of course not the only students uh, killed in the United States by the US state uh, during the 1960s and 1970s. Eight black students were killed and at least 39 were injured during demonstrations at South Carolina State College in 1968, at Jackson State in Mississippi in 1970, just two days, I think, after the shootings at Kent State, um, and at Southern University in Louisiana in 1972. However, as Marion Jackson has noted, no one paid much attention uh, nationally to uh, the latter set of shootings because it was hardly unusual uh, for blacks to be shot, and particularly in the Deep South. Instead, Kent State has gotten the lion's share of attention because mainstream America and the American government could not display with with impunity the same degree of indifference towards victimised white students that they traditionally displayed towards victimised black students. In other words, national indifference about those killings at Orangeburg, Southern University and Jackson State translated into national ambivalence about the events at Kent State. So part of the reason for the continuing controversies over May 4th, um, we would argue, stems from the difficulties, the deaths of white students, at the hands of National Guardsmen, produces for the liberal American state. Uh, Jenny Edkins uh, has usefully elaborated the nature of such difficulties through her notion of trauma time. Mm. That is, moments when the smooth time or the imagined time or the symbolic story that underpins the sovereign power of the state, that is, its authority to narrate through official or public history the past, to to tell us who we are, where we've come from, how we act in the world, and so forth, These are moments when um, that smooth time of the state is interrupted by events. The liberal state is constituted in the United States as the protector, not the enemy, of the imagined community of America, and in particular, privileged subjects like white university students. The discursive ruptures which are opened in liberal narratives by acts of state violence against its own citizens, and particularly its white children uh, in this case, of course do not fill themselves. After traumatic events, Edkins argues, there's a struggle over memory. May 4th in Kent State uh, signs that anchor a variety of competing narratives in large part because of the efforts past and present, students, staff, and the wider community um, both within Kent and across the United States to maintain um, a competing alternative account of what happened and why to that which one tends to find uh, in official histories. So let me say something then about the pattern of commemoration or non-commemoration uh, that one sees at Kent State um, following 1970, I'll just touch on a couple of aspects of this um, so you get a sense of what I'm talking about. There's two features that are worth uh, drawing to our attention. The first is a striking proliferation of commemorations and memorializations, uh, with a merely attempted or actually realized. The list I've given you on the second page of the handout is a very, very partial list. Um, and I'll just talk about some of these as we go along. But one of the things that's striking uh, at Kent State is the difficulty, the repeated difficulty, of actually producing a memorial or a commemoration and doing so in a way which, um, I guess, the standard um, word would be healing. Enables healing or if you need to come together uh, around some shared understanding of the tragic uh, events that take place. And that's the second thing that one would point out. The seemingly inevitable controversies surrounding each such effort. From the beginning, there were controversies over the memorialisation of May 4th, over who owned May 4th, over who should organise the commemorations, and most importantly, over the meaning of the events themselves. Memorialisation and commemoration began very shortly after the shooting. So in 1971, uh, you saw the institution of the Candlelight Walk and Vigil, uh, which has continued to this day. The candlelight procession begins at 11pm on May 3rd, it wends its way around the campus to the various sites uh, which are significant uh, in the events of May 4th, and culminates at Prentice Hall parking lot, where the four students were killed. This is followed by an all-night vigil in which individuals in shifts remain in the four spaces until 12.24 on May 4th, marking the time of the actual shootings. Those conducting the vigil are encouraged to learn something about the student in whose place they stand. At twelve twenty-four, those holding the vigil then return to the main site of the May 4th program, which begins with brief biographies of the four dead students. This happens every year. Now, I've gone into this in some detail so you get a, a flavor. It's a very solemn, sort of quasi-religious um, commemoration. Um, a large group of people carry candles, walk silently and respectfully across the campus and then stand at the sights of the guests um, the of the Ford students through the night in shifts, people you know, take, take turns and so forth. Now, the candlelight vigil um, is and always has been the preferred form of commemoration of the Kent State campus itself, of the, of the administration of the university. There are three things I want to note about it. The first is that this particular um, form of commemoration has continued since 1971, despite the fact that most of the KSU students who now participate were not even born in 1970. So this has uh, a continuity uh, and a strength, if you like, of support uh, within the student community which continues from year to year, from generation, student generation to student generation. Second, it makes the four dead students central to the commemoration. So it's very clear what the commemoration is about. It's about the four students who were killed. Third, this commemoration, as with most of the others, was not initiated by the university. Instead, it was organised, first of all, by a Kent State University professor Jerry Lewis in conjunction with a group of students and was then taken over by the Centre for Peaceful Change, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. This particular form of commemoration also highlights um, another of the controversies surrounding memorialisation, and that is the perceived reluctance of the university itself to offer a memorial. So in 1971, the year after the shooting, the University did sponsor the first annual May 4th Memorial Programme, which occurs actually on the day, um, and in contrast to the Candlelit Vigil is a very rowdy affair. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this character in just a moment. Um, four years later though, in 1975, the University announced that it was going to cut funding, the annual events, on the grounds that five years was long enough to remember the shootings, um, which led to charges of a certain insensitivity uh, on the part of the administration. This is an important development because from 1975 right through to the present, the organisation of the May 4th Memorial Program has been taken over by the May 4th Task Force, which is a student organisation with continuing links to a wider community of May 4th veterans, the students who are actually there, um, and a wider activist community, as well as um, current and retired staff of the university. It's important because that institutionalises... Um, if you like an, an avenue into the um, commemoration, uh, memorial um, activities on the campus for a larger community, which is expressive of what I've been referring to as kind of popular memory um, of the shootings and so forth. So the, the families of the um, of the, uh, the the four uh, who were killed, for example, have a very close connections with the May Fourth Task Force, which then functions as the vehicle by which they are enabled to have continuing participation um, on campus. To give a flavour of how the University itself has seen um, the uh, appropriate forms of commemoration, prior to 1990, uh, when the May 4th memorial that you and I had so much trouble finding uh, was dedicated, the most important gesture by the University was the establishment of the Centre for Peaceful Change in 1971. The Centre's mission was to teach courses, conduct research and provide public service related to non-violent social change. Even this seemingly rather innocuous gesture caused controversy, however. For example, to fulfil its mission, the Centre for Peaceful Change was also to offer an undergraduate major. But what was it to be called? The Ohio State Board of Regents would not accept peace studies – that was the title initially proposed – on the grounds that this was too radical. As a result, the program was called Integrative Change, which of course is a completely meaningless title, um, but which was deemed you know, suitable uh, to get through the, um, the Conservative Ohio State Board of Regents. Um, more recently, and I'll come to this later in my talk, more recently the Centre has been um, transformed into the Centre for Applied Conflict Management um, as part of the marketization uh, of May 4th. Um, Kent, um, as you'll see in a moment, has a special place in national and international history, and so using this to market itself uh, and its wares to the world. So right from the beginning then, right right from the very early 70s, as you were starting to see efforts both um, within the university itself and also within the wider community, um, memorialisation of May 4th at Kent State pitted conservative narratives of social cohesion uh, against more critical narratives uh, of peace and justice. I want to just briefly touch uh, on two other um, sort of controversies uh, that took place during this period, again, just to give you a sense of the ongoing uh, contestations which generated um, the rather peculiar situation that Newton and I encountered in the mid-90s. The first is the so-called Jim controversy of 1977 to 1978. Um, the shootings actually took place quite a long distance from where the National Guard was standing. In fact, some of the students who were killed um, were 130 yards um, away um, from the National Guardsmen. There are a number of students in between, but um, a good distance. Um, and one of the reasons that the National Guardsmen subsequently gave for their actions was they felt threatened. They thought well, they were going to be attacked uh, by the students. Um, and so, for those people who would put forward a more popular Uh, memory of the shootings as being really about these highly armed um, National Guardsmen shooting unarmed students. It was very important to be able to sort of reconstruct an imagination sort of the geography of the day. So you need to be able to see how the land was laid out, where people were standing, to get a sense of of what was going on, and indeed also to challenge uh, the National Guardsmen's account. Uh, In 1977 uh, the university proposed to build a gym axe, and decided, I'm sure by accident, uh, to build it on the site of the shootings. This led to a very large protest because of course what was, the geography of the shootings was obscured. It became impossible to go back onto the site and to uh, reconstruct um, where people were standing when the shootings and so forth took place. You probably don't know this but this led to an occupation uh, of the site by several hundred people, a tent city. Um, blossomed. Uh, there was, was a continuing uh, occupation which was eventually broken um, when the university refused uh, to change the contract for uh, the building of the gym. The was not fact built on the site, uh, arrested hundreds of people, uh, and so forth. Um, but um, as a result of that, the university did allow um, for the cancellation of classes uh, every year. Uh, on the afternoon of May 4th, but this was voluntary and up to the individual instructor. Uh, The second uh, controversy that takes place during this period surrounds the May 4th Memorial, which was dedicated in 1990, uh, and which you and I had been having trouble finding. Um, The May 4th Memorial Committee was established in March of 1984, and it decided that the Kent State shootings should be memorialised because they remained a visible milestone in a war that belonged to another generation. And they said that any memorial emphasised that May 4th sensitised Americans to regimented lines of communications and authority. They further said that all society was the victim of May 4th, students, guardsmen, townspeople and faculty. The four dead, of course, paid the ultimate price. That's a great quote. Um, Because the committee claimed it was impossible Um, For there to be any sort of definitive explanation of the shootings, they said that in order to memorialise these events effectively, what was needed was a site that reflected the diverse constituencies and meanings um, that people had brought to bear. And so they said what was needed was a site that would give visitors the opportunity to inquire into the many reasons and purposes of the events that led to the killing, to encourage a learning process, to broaden the perspective of these events, and finally to reflect on how the differences confronting this community and this nation at the time may have been resolved peacefully. Thus was born Kent State's May 4th slogan, Inquire, Learn, Reflect. Now, of course, the memorial defined in these terms encourages personal reflection, think the the candlelit vigil, rather than political activism. Um, It was decided that um, the memorial itself, which is a a kind of granite structure, which I would show you if my uh, memory stick with me, but it's not, um, would be a ground structure surrounded by 58,175 daffodils, the number of the country's losses in Vietnam. Uh, note the comparison with the Vietnam uh, monument in Washington, uh, which has a very similar form in that the names of the 58,000 um, uh, casualties are engraved on the wall. A Kent Inquire, Learn, Reflect was to be engraved on the memorial. Affirming the intent, the memorial site provide visitors an opportunity to inquire, to learn and to reflect on how differences might be resolved peacefully. Well, this looks like a very positive development, except that it was never built. Um, In 1988, the university trustees failed to raise the money needed for the memorial. They needed $1.3 million to do it. Um, In fact, they only managed to raise $100,000. And so in the end, they only built 7% of it. This is partly why you try have so much trouble finding it, because it's actually quite small. Uh, like a spine tap moment. It's supposed to be a <laughs> yes, kind of thing. Um, contrast this with um, uh, the university's successful efforts, uh, at more at the same time, to raise $6 million for a fashion museum and a school of fashion design. Um, this was pointed out repeatedly um, by um, members of that sort of like extended community I've invoked several times um, around the May 4th task force and indeed the wider um, community. So, just to give you a sense, A series of um, aborted, failed, um, uh, unsuccessful attempts to memorialise. Ongoing protests um, um, about all of this. Now, as I said at the outset, one way I would begin to make sense of this history um, is by thinking about the ways in which conflicting narratives um, of the events of May 4th emerged at the time um, and have remained remarkably persistent right up until the present day. I want to identify three. Um, I think um, as I lay these out to you, you'll start to see why and how um, it's quite difficult uh, to imagine any sort of um, obvious resolution uh, of these uh, narratives. Uh, Two of these narratives um, were national in scope. This is how Todd Gitlin uh, described them. He said, the country cracked in two. There were those who blamed the National Guard and their commanders in high places for shooting into an unarmed crowd. And on the other hand, there were those who blamed the students for burning down ROTC buildings and God knows what else, and what had war of been killed. Um, I refer you, if you turn the page here, uh, to the two quotations at the top of page three of the handout. Uh, the first one is from a former Oberlin college student very shortly after the shooting, saying how do I explain this to a European when it sounds to him so much like Prague? Uh, Prague 968. The other is from Seabury Ford, who was the special prosecutor for the Portland County um, um, sort of investigation uh, of the events, who said they should have shot all the troublemakers. Uh, as I said earlier, this is still a not uncommon uh, sentiment expressed um, in the towns around Kent State, um, and indeed by some of the student body up until the present day. So those are the first two narratives, which I'll go into more detail about in just a moment. The third narrative emerges as a kind of liberal middle ground. The shootings were merely a tragic accident. As, as I'm now to say, show, the university's strategies, uh, over time um, uh, in particular, contribute to a representation of um, the events of May 4th that generates um, a passive, um, sort of uh, reflective, individualized uh, understanding of what these uh, events mean, uh, how we should relate to them. It emphasizes the tragic character, the sort of the accidental, um, you know, cock up, screw up um, kind of character of them. Um, and more recently, has sought to use May 4th as a source of corporate rebranding uh, in terms of selling Kent State to the world. What I want to do now is to briefly work through these three narratives just to uh, in- emphasize some of their um, salient features. And in doing so, I want to focus also on the ways in which they position um, the United States and Kent State, both within relation to the United States itself, but also in relation to the wider world. Because what I want to argue is that at least two of these narratives, um, and these are, I think, the dominant ones, at least two of these narratives tend to make um, US involvement in Southeast Asia and indeed in the wider world a kind of background condition or indeed they seem to sort of like read it out altogether. What you get instead get an emphasis on is US culture, US values, democracy, the limits of appropriate um, protest and so forth. The first narrative is a law and order story in which the protesters got what they deserved. This story depicts a pack of ungrateful, dirty, obscene, and violent students. Um, those particular um, features of the students uh, appear in varying ways um, in different um, uh, iterations of this narrative. But there's a repeated reference to them being dirty, you know, barefoot, um, swearing, swearing's terrible, um, and so forth. Who, probably the instigation of outside agitators and communists, this was Nixon's view, a bunch of communist agitators got onto campus and sort of like subverted the youth had been rioting for several days, inflicting property damage on Kent businesses, which is true, burned down the ROTC building on campus, it was never um, determined who had done it, and who held an illegal rally on May 4th in defiance of the National Guard's legitimate attempt to re-establish order. This narrative drawn wider disparaging, disparaging representations of protesting students. So Nixon, for example, in the New York Times referred to them as bums. Vice President Spiro Agnew said they should be wearing brown shirts or white sheets. Ohio Governor James Rhodes said they were worse than the brown shirts and the communist element and the night riders and the vigilantes. They are the worst type of people that we have in America. In this narrative, the state acted appropriately to quell an illegal and quite unfathomable breakdown of law and order, of the civilised Middle American way of life. In shooting the students, the National Guards simply acted in self-defence in the face of violent protesters throwing rocks, shouting slogans and obscenities. The May 4th shootings, then, were directly the result of student violence. In other words, the protesters themselves bore responsibility for the killings. One former Ohio National Guardsman said he thought that the shootings were a good thing because they stopped everything right there. Everything cooled down after that. Others weren't so... um, circumspect as I showed you special prosecutor Severy Ford said they should have shot all the troublemakers. Um, as I said those kinds of opinions are still expressed so um, you can go on websites uh, and look at um, sort of like comments that people post uh, in relation to May you 4th know, in, in the past you know, five years for example so people say things like well they should have shot them for more than 11 seconds that kind of stuff they actually have fired for 13 seconds but you get the idea. Now, in terms of the um, role of the United States in Southeast Asia, the sort of role of U.S. imperialism um, in relation to the shootings, what's interesting about this first uh, narrative is that the international only enters uh, in the form of outside communist agitators infiltrating U.S. campuses and instigating unrest in the context of a legitimate war against communism in Southeast Asia. The salient political issue is the collapse of law and order and the consequent threat to U.S. society and national security. So it's about the internal character of the United States, about law and order. The second narrative, um, which is um, uh, more common in um, popular memory, um, emphasises an entirely different account. It begins with the essentially peaceful nature of the protest, and the excessive violence of the National Guard and, by extension, of the US state. The students had gathered at a peaceful rally at which they were exercising their constitutional rights to protest. That's a quote from the May 4th Task Force webpage. They were unarmed, and as one of the injured said, the stones thrown at the Guard were few and ineffective. They didn't really mean to throw the stones. Contrary to the Guard's claim of self-defence, there was no time on May 4th when a Guardsman's life was in danger. I think that's um, uh, empirically true. And they were certainly in no danger at the time they fired into an unarmed crowd. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the film, but the film of the particular sequence that leads up to the shootings, you have um, a group of armed um, National Guardsmen wearing helmets, gas masks, um, you know, carrying um, uh, M1 rifles and so forth, all the sort of paraphernalia, who advance uh, across one of the playing fields. Um, at Kent State, while the students sort of like you know retreat before them. the students all around, right? There's some students who are protesting, there's other students who are just watching because you know, students are going from back and forth between classes and all this kind of stuff. So, the National Guardsmen, who to be fair had been out you know um, uh, on patrol the night before, they had been brought in from other places where they'd been working, clearly tired and so forth, march into the field, nothing much happens, uh, they stand there for a while, and it's not quite clear what they're going to do, and they turn around and they march back, right? It's not a particular. It's kind of like the Grand Duke of York march you know, the in marching up the top of the hill, marching down again. Just as they're getting back to the, um, their starting point, they pause as a group, turn, and fire into the, um, into the crowd. Right? There's no obvious provocation. Um, so I mean, that's that's uh, the situation. Um, so um, as Alan Canfor said, there's no obvious um, danger to um, the guardsmen, uh, at least in the film. Uh, that's been made available subsequently. Um, In stark contrast, the force wielded by the state, the Guardsmen were were armed with loaded M1 rifles, fixed bayonets, 45 calibre pistols, shotguns, and wearing gas masks, was wildly excessive. Richard Nixon put together a commission on campus unrest, also known as the Scranton Commission, and they asserted unambiguously that the indiscriminate firing of rifles into a crowd of students and the deaths that followed were unnecessary, unwarranted, and inexcusable. So in this view, the slain students were, quote, representatives of the conscience of the nation. That's the May 4th Task Force again. Moreover, not only were the students not rioting, of the city shouting ingrates, but two of those killed, Sandy Schruer and Bill Schroeder, were not even involved in the protests. As I said, some of the students were killed at a very great distance from the guardsmen themselves. They were just like going from class to class and happened to be in the line of fire. Now, because this narrative focuses on legitimate protest both against the government's war in Vietnam, including the expansion of war into Cambodia, and against the presence of the National Guard on campus, it explicitly links the domestic politics of law and order to U.S. foreign policy. The killings, then, are portrayed as the state's violent response to legitimate dissent against an illegal and imperial foreign policy. In other words there's clear and explicit links made between the domestic and the international uh, in this particular narrative. I'll come back to that. The third narrative, um, and this is probably the one which has subsequently gone on to have the most, um, I guess, um, (coughs) probably the most powerful of the three, I think, um, as you'll see in a moment when I refer to um, uh, a resolution in the US um, House of Representatives last May. The third narrative articulates May 4th as simply a tragedy, uh, this is how Kent State University President Braj Golding described it. He said, The slain students are victims of a tragedy, a combination of international, national, local and personal forces, which exploded in panic and unreason on May 4th. The events of May 4th issued, he said, from a series of mistakes on everyone's part, a chain of events that incredibly led to the shooting of four white students on a college campus in the United States. It was no one's fault, so no one can be blamed. Now, this particular narrative, as I said, is especially prominent uh, in Kent State's own accounts uh, of what happened and why, um, but it's also gone on to take on a larger residence um, in the United States. Many of the commemorations and memorials, such as the Centre for Peaceful Change, for example, are dedicated to this, the events of May 4th. The students are not named uh, and are not acknowledged. This has prompted repeated namings of the students um, in um, uh, the second narrative and in popular history, uh, popular memory. Second, if and when mentioning the slain students can't be avoided, they're usually treated as um, often unnamed victims of a tragedy. That way, justice isn't an issue, nor is state or university policy. So what's interesting about this particular narrative is that it sort of sidelines um, the international context within which the protests take place, Uh, it ignores the link between uh, dissent from foreign policy and state repression and focuses all of the attention onto the tragedy that results from violent protest. Now what's interesting here is this smuggles responsibility for um, the deaths back in and passes it over to the students. Because the students acted violently, therefore they have prompted this particular chain of events. So they're responsible for their own deaths, uh, in other words. Um, This, of course, is not an unusual um, um, narrative frame uh, in terms of well, U.S. Um, history, but indeed um, other state histories as well. Very often, the people who get killed tend to be wi- tend to wind up being blamed for um, their own deaths. Now, I want to make one more point um, about these narratives before I go on to say something about um, again what's happened uh, in the past um, decade or so. Just very quickly to sort of like sum this up and then conclude. It's only possible to articulate May 4th as an unforeseen and uncontrollable tragedy if the shootings are treated as an isolated event, outside of social and international context. For example, the shooting of unarmed citizens by the state must be seen as exceptional, as something unprecedented. But of course, as John has pointed out, the use of force by the US state against demonstrating citizens is no novelty. Uh, Indeed, it's part of a long-standing American tradition. Official violence, really discussed in times of domestic tranquility, has been a standard response to waves of popular discontent that called into question the sanctity of government decisions. In other words, much like accounts of September 11, 2001, which portray it as an isolated out-of-the-blue act, May 4th appears as a solitary tragic event only because of the considerable ideological labour that's constructed as such. In fact, one might argue it's part of a larger practice. In May 1970, it's worth remembering, the U.S. government is actively trying to stem the rising tide of popular protest to bring the popular will into a its zone to replace an unduly critical population with a more quiescent, if not more supportive one. That's part of the reason why um, May 4th is important, because of course as H.R. Uh, Haldeman, uh, the um, um, chief of staff, of uh, Richard Nixon, pointed out in his memoirs, The shootings at Kent State um, have a direct connection to the Watergate break-in because the Nixon government decided it had to find ways to deal with its internal uh, opposition, with this form of dissent uh, within the U.S. So in order to see this as um, um, a tragedy, one has to obscure the wider context within which it takes place. So this is how uh, another commentator describes it. There was nothing at Kent State different from a hundred or two hundred other universities in the country, except that people died there. If it didn't happen at Kent, it was going to happen someplace else. That was the tragedy of the whole thing. Okay, um, I've very briefly reconstructed these three narratives, and I've begun to trace some of the ways in which they simply contradict each other. They're not compatible in terms of uh, the key uh, agents, in terms of the, the patterns of intention and causation, in terms of uh, the context uh, within which these events take place. By way of um, sort of um, bringing us up to the present, I want now briefly to do two things. First of all, I want to say something about um, what's happened over the course of the past 10 years, because the account I've given you so far takes us up to about Um, very briefly uh, say something about uh, what happened um, in Washington uh, on May 5th uh, 2010 um, when um, uh, the the House of Representatives passed unanimously um, um, a House resolution to commemorate the 40th anniversary uh, of the shootings so May 4th is a problem for Kent State. If you put yourself in the position of the university administration, it's a persistent problem. Why is it a problem? It gives the university a bad name. In the 1970s, there were falling enrollments at Kent State because it was perceived completely erroneously as a radical campus, so no one wanted to go. Um, it also gives the university problems because persistently, every year, come May 4th, um, the candlelit vigil goes off without a hitch, it's already quiet and restful and calm. On May 4th itself, Uh, the May 4th task force organises a programme of events and speakers which almost invariably gets into local news often generates um, unwelcome publicity for the university for example when the students after the events decide to go downtown um, and have a protest as happened in 2003 um, in the context of the invasion of Iraq Um, I wandered along uh, on that particular protest um, and it was striking uh, the ways in which um, what had been a perfectly peaceful demonstration um, which was a demonstration against the war, was confronted with over a hundred, um, I can only really describe them as robocops, right? So um, police had been pulled in from all around Kent uh, with very heavy um, um, armour and so forth, um, and a very aggressive stance was adopted uh, towards the protesters. You had the, sort of, the usual sort of selective plucking out of um, leaders and so forth, selective arrests and so forth. The day ended with helicopters, uh, tear gas, uh, and the students all being chased back uh, off the campus. Um, so the problem for the university, of course, is that's bad publicity. Um, so you turn the television on in the evening, and there's Kent State, and Kent State's associated with what? Uh, a bunch of anti-American protesters you know, engaging in you know, nasty actions which bring the university uh, into disrepute. This has been a constant problem from 1970 all the way through uh, to the end of the 20th century from the university administration's point of view. They reacted to this in two ways. The first thing they did was they changed the university's name. So in 1986, instead of being called Kent State, they started telling um, sports um, teams, they started telling members of staff that they should refer to it as Kent. And so um, the sports teams, for example, their uniforms had said Kent State. Now they just said Kent. Academic staff were informed when dealing with the public they should refer to Kent, not Kent State. So this is kind of an attempt, uh, not a very successful attempt, to try and rebrand. brand <laughs> Fourteen years later, they changed their mind. right? So in 2000, the university changed the name back. So some of the uniforms changed from Kent to Kent State. Right? Something it's okay to be Kent State. Why is this? Uh, this is because then-President uh, Carol Cartwright decided in the run-up to the 30th anniversary of the shootings, um, and one has to give her credit for this, um, uh, she decided it was time, as it were, to sort of like do something to um, assert, reassert university ownership, I guess, over the memory of Kent State, and so she sought to rebrand it. Um, her statement was more word for word: Kent State has a place in national and international history, and we should exploit that you want to bring attention to the university, to bring students to the university, and so on and so forth. And so, in 2000, you had a rebranding exercise. So, for the first time. uh, The university president, Carol Cartwright, actually participated in the May 4th um, uh, commemoration itself. Uh, She did so uh, in 2003, which was the last time I attended it, Um, which I have to say, as someone who sort of studied Kent State, was just astonishing to see a member of the university administration actually up on the podium, uh, on the stage, with um, the the May 4th um, um, uh, task force members, um, sort of talking about Kent State and how important it was to remember and so forth and so on. Now, we shouldn't get too carried away by this, of course, because at the same time, um, she was refusing to correspond or respond to correspondence uh, from the same people that she was on the stage with, uh, who were trying to get some money from the university to refurbish the May 4th um, uh, Resource Centre uh, in the library, which had become a little bit shoddy because the university hadn't been keeping up uh, for the previous 25 years. It was only when they went public to the local media that she actually decided that she'd given some money to, to make the place a decent, half decent so it's explicitly a branding exercise. Now, I'm going to conclude my comments today by asking what kind of history uh, is Kent State associating with May 4th, right? Because the rebranding exercise is explicitly about asserting Kent State's place in history, about making clear that we have something, we being Kent State, something to save the world, um, you know, we have a centre for peaceful change and so forth, we know something about what it means um, to live in a democracy and the limits of a uh, democracy, uh, protest in democracy might be. How do they seek... To understand what living in a democracy means. That is, what meaning is attributed to the events of May 4th. The theme for the official university commemoration of the thirtieth anniversary of the shootings, Experiencing Democracy Inquire, Learn, Reflect was intended, said Carol Cartwright, to enable discussion of the responsibilities, risks and opportunities of living in a democratic society. The highlight of the events organised was to be a world-class academic symposium, it's a quote, held on 1st and 2nd of May, and devoted to the boundaries of freedom of expression and order in a democratic society. Now what's interesting about this is that the lesson becomes how we should live in this kind of society. It's about our values, about what it means to be a citizen uh, in a democracy. What's very clear is that the administration thinks that violent protest, uh, uh, protest working outside the system, is unacceptable. And we know this because you might get shot. Um, Now, what's interesting about this is that, of course, as I said at the outset, uh, sorry, I'm compressing slightly to to finish um, uh, on time. What's interesting about this is it contrasts directly with the ways in which popular memory, and the May Fourth Task Force, which every year organises the events on May Fourth itself, the ways in which they characterise what May Fourth means. So for the same commemoration, the May 4th task force theme for the commemoration was Peace. Learn it, live it, teach it. In other words, from the point of view of popular memory, the shootings have always been um, explicitly located in an international context, uh, in a context where um, uh, reflection and learning are supposed to lead to collective action in the service of social change. You can capture this very well uh, in this particular sort of, I'm not sure if you call it a poem uh, by Nancy Groom from nineteen seventy seven. Kent State has meaning around the world. Vietnam, Cambodia, Kent State. People struggling in the United States and Asia against the hegemony of American capitalist power. Orangeburg, Kent State, Jackson State. Savage military oppression of young Americans. Kent State, Watergate. Cynical obstruction by overt class interested state action. Now, what's interesting here is that, in contrast to the way in which the university um, and the tragedy narrative more generally <coughs> seek to commemorate May Fourth, the United States is explicitly located in a kind of a web of relations that extend well beyond the nation-state. The speakers at the 2000 commemoration included Noam Chomsky, Mumia Abu uh, Jamal on tape, Ramona Africa of MOVE, and Vernon Belcour of the American Indian Movement, as well as Juliet Beck from Global Exchange. In other words. There's an explicit and repeated connection between what's going on inside the United States and what's going on outside. Part of the reason why these narratives can't come together, if you like, in a satisfying kind of a way, is precisely because the other two narratives, the tragedy narrative, uh, as well as the, the bad student narrative, are explicitly all about the United States. They explicitly work precisely because they exclude and cut off these kinds of connections, which popular memory has persistently sought to foreground uh, over the course of the last three or four decades. Okay, um, I'll stop there. I had wanted to say something very briefly um, about the remarkable statement that was made by um, Alan Grayson, um, who was the Democratic congressman from Florida um, in May 5th, 2010. Because of course, um, this history is ongoing, um, and it's not as if it stops in 2000 or 2003. Um, I've included in the handout uh, House Resolution 1272. This is hugely significant because it's uh, a recognition by the US House of Representatives uh, of the commemoration of May 4th. This is if you like, um, about as close as you can get to official history, to concentrated formal political power recognising the significant status of May 4th and the shootings and so forth and this reference here not only to um, the names of those who were shot um, there's also reference to um, the various things that May 4th has done, uh, the May 4th task force and so forth. Notice, nonetheless, that the House of Representatives, in commemoration of the shootings, recognizes the tragedy of the May 4th shootings and the implications the shootings have had not only on Kent State and the local community, but also on the nation and the world. Now. It's in the context of the passage of this resolution through the House of Congress, um, by a vote of 413 to nothing, that um, Alan Grayson, who was one of the sponsors of the Bill um, uh, uh, made the following statement. This is the very end of the statement. What he does, um, and it's remarkable in terms of the context of the history of I've just been recounting, what he does is he begins by situating the shootings in the context of Nixon's lies in 1968, hmm. the medi Lai massacre. Um, uh, the um, bringing in of the draft, he talks about what happens at, at Jackson State, uh, he talks about this context for the shootings, and he makes it very clear that it's the heavily armed guardsmen who shoot the unarmed um, uh, students. But then he goes on to, and he begins with this photograph, the right? iconic one, but he then goes on to show another one, which I had planned to show you, but I will now reconstruct uh, for you in imagination. He goes on to show another one, not quite so iconic as this, which is of um, a sheet, which has been taken off a bed and hung out of a window uh, at New York University, not long after the shootings. And on the sheet has been written, they can't kill us all. This is what Grayson says in relation to this photograph, which he places before his um, fellow members of Congress. They can't kill us all. Now then is now together, both times, there are people all around the world, and especially in America, who want to live in peace who think that no war is better than two wars, who think they voted to end war, not to continue it, who know in their hearts they can't kill us all. There are people who think we should be concentrating on education and not war, and we know they can't kill us all. There are people who think we should be concentrating on our health, our own bodies, improving our living standards, rebuilding America instead of war, and they can't kill us all. There are people who believe, not only in America, but all over the world, that we should be striving every day toward peace, toward peace, not toward war, and they can't kill us all. Notice the form of identification in this particular statement. The form of identification shifts. It shifts from an imagined community of Americans to an imagined community that includes Americans as well as people all around the world. This is not a nationalist imaginary that's working here. Now, having said that, Grayson's a politician. He's an American politician. So he earlier in his speech refers to the four Americans uh, who died on May 4th. right? And there's a number of places here where you can see a tension. Between sort of the kind of international connections invoked by Nancy Grimm um, and a much more sort of conventional American sort of imaginary of we Americans to rebuild America and so forth and, and so on. Nonetheless, I would suggest that what you can see in this little snippet is a kind of an attempt to merge these narratives in the service of um, an explicitly sort of post-nationalist, if you like. Um, uh, account of the, the, the shootings and, and what they need. And I would suggest also that it's precisely because that particular account cannot be easily married to or uh, made compatible with the more nationalist um, sort of value or cultural accounts that one tends to see in other two narratives that May 4th is likely to continue to resonate in exactly the same kinds of ways into the 21st century as it has in the 20th. I apologise for running long. Thank you for your attention.
0: Brilliant. Thanks.